The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, if you're, if you're new to Christ the King, uh, you may not know this, but um, our senior pastor is Penny, and he's, he's away uh, this morning, so um, uh, it is my privilege uh, to get to bring our series on the Psalms that we do every summer uh, to a close this morning. Uh, next week, we'll begin uh, a study of the book of Joshua, uh, but today we're going to be looking at Psalm 44. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 44. And let's read that together. Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. The God, in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we'd forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. 
Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Well, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow before you, creator of heaven and earth, of things seen and unseen, the mighty Redeemer, the one who snatched Israel from the hands of Pharaoh, and brought them on eagles' wings, brought them into the land. Oh, Father, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your steadfast love. And we ask, Lord, as we submit ourselves to your word this morning, that we will see more of your grace, that you will teach us more about who you are, what you've done, what you call us to. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, there, there is a tale told in a 10th century poem uh, found in the book of Exeter. Uh, it's a poem called The Wanderer. Some of you might have been made to read it. Some of you might actually like to read it. It's a famous poem. Uh, it inspired W.H. Auden's poem, The Wanderer. It's a poem that has been admired by other poets like Seamus Haney and J.R.R. Tolkien. Although Tolkien, he, he didn't like the title. He, he thought it should be entitled The Exile's Lament. <laughs> but anyway, it's a tale of the Erdstapa, the earth stepper, the wanderer. It's a tale of a man who was forced to walk this dreary world alone as an exile after his comrades and after his warlord were lost in battle. It is a raw, melancholy poem. And throughout the poem, we hear the poet, the wanderer, recalling the good old days. The days of feasting in the mead halls, the days of celebration at their battle victories. But now all is gone. All has been lost. He's alone. He's in exile. And as we hear him pondering the loss of the good old days, in the middle of the poem, we hear him say these words. He says, where has the horse gone? Where are my kindred? Where is the giver of treasure? Where are the benches to bear us? Joys of the hall to bring us together. No more the bright goblet, all gone, the mailed warrior lost for good, the pride of princes, it's all shot through in misery in earthly realms. Here, your wealth was fleeting. Your friends were fleeting. Anyone at all was fleeting. Your family only ever was fleeting. And this whole foundation of the earth wastes away. You see, the wanderer, he had known true happiness. He had known blessing. He remembered what it was like in the good old days. But he'd lost it all. The whole foundation of the earth was wasting away before his eyes. And I wonder if you have ever felt this way. 
Have you ever experienced such loss and emptiness and believed that the world, your world, was crumbling to the ground, that it was wasting away before your very eyes? The psalmist in the psalm that we just read, he certainly had. And yet his circumstances were far more puzzling and severe than the wanderer's. You see, unlike the wanderer whose pitiable circumstances were due to the chance misfortunes of battle, the psalmist in his own suffering, he felt that almighty God, his God, had turned his back on him and that he was the cause of his misfortunes. Friends, have you ever experienced this? In the midst of your suffering, Have you ever felt that you weren't just enduring the common yet difficult pains of all who live in a fallen and broken world, but that you were actually the target of the Lord and that you were his enemy rather than his beloved child? Well, Psalm 44, it gives voice to this experience. It gives us a glimpse into the heart of the psalmist as he wrestles to reconcile what he knows to be true of God and the inexplicable suffering that he and his brothers and sisters are facing. And it it does so in such a raw and unvarnished way that I, I think it's like no other psalm in the Bible. So what can we learn from this psalm? What can we learn about how to approach the Lord in our suffering? How should we let this psalm shape our expectations of suffering as God's people? And what does it have to say to us about the Lord's love when we face trials? Well, the psalmist begins in verses one through eight by thinking of the good old days about the past glory He recalls what he's heard of the good old days, what his fathers told him about the days of old. And we hear him say in verse 1, O God, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in the days, in their days, in the days of old. And the word deeds there is actually singular. And it's significant because what he actually has in view is the conquest. And he's going to make that clear in verses 2 through 3. Look at what he says. He says, you drove out the nations. You planted them, our ancestors. You afflicted the peoples. You set them free. Did you notice how he uses the word you over and over? You see, throughout this psalm, the psalmist's focus is going to be on the work of the Lord, both positive and negative, as we'll see. And he emphasizes this by repeating that word, you, over and over, 20 times I counted in 26 verses. And in this first section, verses 1 through 8, his focus is entirely positive. And so he goes on in verse 3, he says, it wasn't by their own sword or their own arm. It was by your right hand, your arm won the land for them and saved them. And here again, we can, we can imagine the psalmist's mind filled with the miraculous events 
of the conquest that he'd been told, of the flooded Jordan dried up for crossing, of the mighty walls of Jericho coming tumbling down at the sound of trumpets, of hailstones falling from heaven and smiting the Amorites, of the sun standing still. The list goes on and on. Indeed, the land was miraculously conquered. As he says at the end of verse 3, he says, because the light of your face was shining upon them, because you delighted in them. You know, that that last bit of verse 3, for you delighted them, it's striking to me. It reminds me of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 10. He said, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. You see, the psalmist, what the psalmist understood and what he's giving testimony to here in these first three verses is that the conquest was entirely an act of the Lord's grace. It was an expression of his love and delight for his people. And it's important that we recognize that the the psalmist isn't recalling the details of the conquest merely to give some sort of historical recitation without any significant meaning for him and for his brothers and sisters in the here and now. No way. The story of God's gift of the land to his ancestors, it had come to have deep, personal and corporate significance. It had shaped who they understood themselves to be, that they too were God's chosen people, that they were loved by him, that he delighted in them. And because of the Lord's love for them, they had put their trust in him. And so as the psalmist goes on, We hear him in verses four through eight give alternating expression, both personal and corporate, to their trust in the Lord. Listen to what he and the congregation say. You are my God, my King, O God. Through you we push down. Through your name we tread upon our enemies, verse five. And that word push down, it's really a word that means to gore. And the the image here is one of a trampling bull. And he goes on in verse six. Not in my bow or sword do I trust. No, the congregation says, in you, you saved us. You put our enemies to shame. And because they'd heard of the Lord's mighty deeds and because they believed them to be true, And because they themselves had experienced his delight and his awesome power, as he goes on, we hear the psalmist bring his his recollection of the good old days of the work of the Lord to a conclusion with a climactic expression of trust in verse 8. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. You see, verses uh, verses one through eight, they give powerful testimony to the gracious work of Almighty God on behalf of his people. C.S. Lewis said in his reflection on the Psalms, 
If we don't admire what's praiseworthy, we'll be stupid, insensitive, and great losers. <laughs> well, the psalmist and the people, they were not great losers. They had done just this. They had praised the Lord for what is truly praiseworthy. But, you know, they weren't just doing that. In these first eight verses, they were bearing witness to their own gratefulness and to their trust in the living God. And, you know, if this psalm came to an end with verse 8, what we'd have is an absolutely glorious psalm of victory or a psalm of thanksgiving. But it isn't such a psalm. That little word there, but, at the beginning of verse 9, it signals to us that the psalmist's mind has taken a turn. He's moved away from the, the pleasant recollections of the, of the days of old. And he's now thinking of his and his brothers and sisters' present grief-ridden circumstances. And he's baffled. He's baffled by the turn of events. There's a disconnect between what he knows to be true of God, of his grace and of his love for his people, and what they're now experiencing. He's ready to lodge a complaint. Listen to what he says in verses 9 through 16. And notice again the rapid, rapid repetition of the word you. He says in verses 9 and 10, but you have rejected us. You've disgraced us. You have refused to lead us in battle. Verses 10 and 11, you've caused us to be routed, to be despoiled. You've made us to be sheep for slaughter. And really the image here is of the battlefield. In the psalmist's estimation, the Lord has caused his people to be massacred by the enemy and left them, as as, uh, left them on the field as food for carrion. And as he, as he goes on in verse 12, we can imagine the psalmist asking, for what? Why did you do this, Lord? What, what did you gain from doing this? And so he says, you sold us for no profit. It's as if you put us up to auction and gave us away. And he goes on in verses 13 and 14, his complaint is unrelenting. Lord, you've basically run us and our reputation through the mud. Now we've become the taunt of our neighbors. We've, we're a byword. We're a shorthand for being a fool. We are the laughingstock of those around us. And all of this is because of you. And, and you know, the psalmist isn't indifferent. The tragedy and the suffering, they're deeply personal to him. Notice what he says in verses 15 and 16. It's because of you and what you've done, Lord, that I'm covered in shame day in and day out. I'm taunted. I'm reviled. There's no escape for me. In these verses, the psalmist's complaint against God is unvarnished and it is unrelenting. And I imagine it's uncomfortable for us to hear. 
And, and I think because of that discomfort, I think we might feel the urge to somehow blunt the force of what he's saying, but it won't work. It won't do, for example, for us to, to try to minimize the present circumstances of the psalmist, to say that they're really, they're really no big deal, that, that his complaint is overblown. Circumstances really aren't that different than what you just sung about in the first eight verses. The psalmist would say, no. We've been routed. We've been slaughtered. We've been humiliated. Our shame is unremitting. Don't tell me it's not that bad. The glorious days of old, the days our fathers told us about, they're gone. The whole foundation of the world is wasting away. And you know, it also won't do for us to say, well, maybe what's happened really isn't God's fault. Maybe he'd come up against too powerful a foe, and that he finally met his match. Again, the psalmist would say, no, I know the sovereign, almighty God in whom I trust. Weren't you listening? I just sung of the miraculous deeds and the power of God. He's not met his match. I appreciate what Gerald Wilson says on this. He says, of one thing, the psalmist and his people are sure. And it is something many Christians today find hard to grasp. When Israel snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, it was not that God had mismanaged the affair, nor that he had permitted the disaster, but he had actually made this terrible thing happen. Friends, as we let the full force of the psalmist's complaint wash over us, we can almost hear him in this section saying, pleading with the Lord, why? Why, Lord? We've heard the stories. We've celebrated your victories. We've turned to you with thankful hearts. We've put our trust in you as one who delights in us. But you've rejected us. Why, Lord? Why? And as the psalmist goes on in verses 17 through 22, we can, we can almost see him bracing for the Lord's objection to his complaint, as if the Lord were about to say to him, you think it's because of me, son of Korah? You think I'm unjust? I'm not unjust. What's happened is my righteous punishment for your sin. And of course, this objection would be consistent with the common belief of the day that the righteous, that the faithful don't suffer. Sinners suffer, yes, but not the righteous. We see this reflected in Job's friend's protests against his claims of innocence, remember? And this widespread belief that the righteous don't suffer bled into the New Testament era. And we see it reflected in the question posed about the man born blind in John 9. Who sinned, they asked, him or his parents? But to this objection, the psalmist 
Like Job, he gives an emphatic no. Listen to what the psalmist says in verses 17 and 18. He says, all this happened, but we've not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our hearts haven't turned back. Our feet haven't wandered off your path. And friends, it's important for us to recognize that he's not claiming complete sinlessness here. We need to remember that God's covenant with his people, it made provision for sin and restitution. Just think of the whole burnt offering or the day of atonement. And no doubt the psalmist and his brothers and sisters had been taking advantage of these provisions as faithful yet sinful members of the covenant community. In other words, what the psalmist is claiming here is simply that at this time in their history, they were bowing the knee to Yahweh. They were trusting in him and sincerely seeking to walk faithfully before him. Because of that, he's puzzled. And he's asking, what had such faithfulness gotten them? Where had God led them? He'd led them to a place of jackals, back to the desolate wilderness, to the shadow of death, as he says in verses nine, verse 19. And as the psalmist continues, we can see him anticipating another objection, that their claims to, to faithfulness, they're really nothing more than deception, that they're, they're somehow a desperate attempt to try to hoodwink God but to that objection again, the psalmist would say no. Listen to what he says in verses 20 and 21. He says, if we'd forgotten your name, that is if we'd walked away from you, or if we'd spread out our hands to a foreign god, that is if they'd begun worshiping idols or, or turned to them in prayer in their time of distress, like their brothers and sisters would later do full scale during the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. If we'd done these things, you, Lord, you would have known it and you would have called us out on it. Just like we know you did when Achan stole the devoted things and he lied about it and you laid his sin bare before the people. No, Lord, we've not deceived you. We're not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. After all, we know that you are the one who knows the secrets of the human heart. Verse 21. Who in their right mind would rely on falsehood before you? No, Lord, the psalmist says in verse 22. It's not because of our faithlessness that we're in this state. It's simply for your sake. And really what he means by saying for your sake here, as several translations capture, what he really means is it's because of you, Lord. It's on account of you, Lord, that we're killed all day long, that we're regarded as nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. And this conclusion really is the inevitable logic of the psalmist's belief in the sovereignty of God. 
John Golden Gay, he captures it well. He says, the fact that God is the one who gave the people victory, verses one through eight, means to the psalmist that God is also the one who brings about their defeat. And you know, in light of the psalmist's unrelenting and unvarnished complaint to God and his unequivocal protest against sinfulness and faithlessness as being the cause of the Lord's rejection or his seeming rejection, it surprises me, and maybe it surprises you as well, that the psalmist nevertheless brings this psalm to a close by turning to the Lord for help in verses 23 through 26. And it's surprising to me for a couple of reasons. It's surprising to me in its boldness. Verse 23, we hear the psalmist call on the Lord to wake up. You might remember Elijah in his contest with the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18, that he taunted them. He mocked their God. He said to them, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And of course, the psalmist knows, as Psalm 121.4 makes plain, that Almighty God, the Lord who keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. And yet here in the midst of his suffering and grief, they are so severe that he calls on the Lord to wake up as if nothing else but the Lord's sleeping could explain his miserable circumstances. And I think the boldness of the psalmist here is made all the more astounding when we remember that the psalmist is a son of Korah whose ancestor the Lord had caused to be swallowed up by the earth when he rebelled against Moses and Aaron. You remember in Numbers 16? And because of that story, because it surely was passed down, we might expect this son of Korah, a descendant of such an infamous rebel, to approach the Lord with a bit more trepidation. (laughs) But no, He approaches him boldly and he calls on him to wake, to rouse, to rise up. And you know what's surprising to me too is is just the very fact that the psalmist turns to the Lord for help when in his estimation the Lord seems to have rejected his people. After all, as Peter Craigie says, at the rational level it would seem rather futile to pray and to seek God's love when immediate experience suggested that God couldn't be relied on. Yet the prayer is rooted in a faith deeper than reason. The faith recognized a mystery in God's ways which made prayer worthwhile even in a time of crisis. You see, the psalmist like Job who in the midst of his own inestimable suffering said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. The psalmist, despite the inexplicability of his own circumstances, he was clinging in faith 
to the God he served. Indeed, he believed, despite all appearances, that the Lord had not ultimately rejected his people, that he was still committed to them, and that he would ultimately be faithful to redeem them. And this is why we hear him say at the end of verse 26, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And so I think the psalmist's prayerful response here in verses 23 through 26, and really throughout the entirety of this difficult psalm, it's not just surprising, but it's instructive. And it's not instructive because it lets us in behind the curtain and explains to us why the Lord ordains suffering for the people he loves. No, he didn't do that for Job. He doesn't do that for the psalmist here. And he doesn't promise to do that for you and me. No, this this psalm is instructive because, not because it, it explains the mysteries of God's providence, but because it frees us. In the midst of our suffering, when we feel the whole world is wasting away and and perhaps that our Lord himself is against us, to turn to our Lord in prayer, to unburden our hearts to him with unreserved honesty and boldness, like the psalmist did. It frees us to ask him for help and to trust that his love for us is, in fact, steadfast, that it will never fail. Friends, do you, like the psalmist, however feebly, know that the Lord's love for you, despite your circumstances, is steadfast? Or are you unsure, perhaps even convinced that he's against you? You know, before we began our summer psalms this year, we finished up a study of Paul's letter to the Romans. And you probably didn't notice this detail. (laughs) But after Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 6 in in Romans chapter, chapter 4, talking about Abraham's faith being credited to him as righteousness, Paul stops directly quoting from the Old Testament scriptures for several chapters. And because the letter is littered with Old Testament quotations, from the get-go, this silence stands out. And so scholars like to say that that the apostle after chapter 4, he goes citationally mute. (laughs) But eventually he breaks his silence. You know when that is? It's in chapter 8. It's in verse 36. Go ahead and turn there as we close. Romans chapter 8. You see, it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 36, where Paul breaks this citational silence and he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, which I'm convinced he was living in in this entire chapter, but we don't have time today to go through it. Friends, it's important for us to understand why he does this. Why at this point in the letter? And why with Psalm 44, verse 22? 
Well, we need to keep in mind that already in this chapter, Paul had in various ways made it plain to his Roman brothers and sisters that suffering is necessary. It's a necessary but unwanted aspect of the Christian life. Just look at verse 17, for example. And in all likelihood, many of Paul's listeners, even as they heard his message, they were suffering severely. Some would have been suffering from lack of food. Others, as slaves, would have been suffering abuse from their masters. And still others would have no doubt been facing social or familial ostracism, either for refusing to perform their civic duties and to participate in pagan rituals or emperor worship, or because they'd bowed the knee to Jesus, a false and disgraced Messiah. And Paul, perceiving that his brothers and his sisters, in the midst of their trials or simply faced with the prospect of suffering, perceiving that they might, like the psalmist, be led to question whether God really did love them, or perhaps even believe that God was against them, he poses a simple but profoundly significant question to them in verse 35. And he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And we can imagine that having finished such a list, the apostle's mind was filled with his own experiences of constant suffering, of shipwrecks, of his thorn in the flesh, and of his repeated and unimaginable beatings. But at any rate, having finished this, li this list, his mind lands on Psalm 44, 22. And in solidarity with his brothers and sisters, he speaks the words of the psalmist, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, Paul had come to believe that for those who belong to Jesus, suffering would be the common lot. And that in our suffering, we participate in a mysterious yet profound way in the sufferings of our Lord, who himself was led like a sheep to be slaughtered. But friends, he doesn't stop there. And it's as if overcome by the very thought of Christ's inseparable love and, and eager to give a resounding answer to his question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul goes on in verses 37 to 39 to say words not only the Romans needed to hear, but we desperately need to hear as well. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, do you see what Paul's doing here? 
in his compassion for his brothers and sisters and in his commitment to the truth, he's bringing two seemingly inconsistent things together. It's as if he were saying to them, yes, dear brothers and sisters, to be a follower of Jesus means that you will suffer. I've experienced it myself and it is hard to understand. But these trials that we have faced or are facing or that we will face, these trials do not mean that the Lord doesn't love us. They don't mean that he's against us. Listen to what I'm saying and listen carefully. No suffering that we could ever imagine could separate us from his love. What a message for those suffering. What comfort for weary and doubting souls. Friends, in the midst of your suffering, do you know, like Paul, the extent of the Lord's love for you? Do you know that in his love he holds you in his hand, that you are, in fact, by faith, hidden with him, the right hand of God? Do you know in the midst of your suffering that you aren't his enemy, but even now you are a conqueror over whatever comes your way? Brothers and sisters, do you know, like the psalmist, that the Lord invites you to turn to him in the midst of your suffering, to unburden your heart to him, to call upon him for help and to trust in his steadfast love for you. You see, the steadfast love of the Lord, that which the psalmist clung to while seeing it dimly as if through a veil. The apostle Paul makes known to us here as the love of God in Christ who suffered on our behalf that we might have life. Do you believe that? Do you know it to be true? As we close this morning, I want us to, to think again about what we sung earlier in the service. I'm reminded of those beautiful words from the first line of Jesus, lover of my soul. Think about these words. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nears, near waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O oh my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. O oh, receive my soul at last. Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We ask, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you will help us, <clears throat> that you will help us in our time of need. For you are mighty, you are powerful, and your love never fails. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of this psalm. We ask, Lord, that you will continue to teach us about who you are. 
continue to teach us that we can come to you and be honest with you. Father, teach us about your enduring, your steadfast love in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.